Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? A verdict? Welcome to the John and Jordan on Justice podcast. Your weekly deep dive into personal injury and wrongful death law. All right. All right. Touching on everything torts, legal tech, trying cases to verdict, and the outlandish stories that come with them. And now, here are your hosts, John Fisher and Jordan Reed David. Alrighty, what's up everybody? Episode 14, uh, you've got John Fisher, Jordan Reed David. Fisher with David here uh, back to talk about some things that are kind of on our minds. Uh, what's going on? Um, you know, no guests today. Just just kind of me and Jordan giving us our thoughts on some things uh, as we go forward. So back, back to basics, back back to the two, the original two. Yeah, back to and, what we do on a normal daily basis between ourselves. Yeah, and, and sometimes life has a way of giving us topics to talk about. I think today is one of those, um, and I think we could – in an overgeneralized way, maybe just cabinet as dealing with tough judges, challenging judges, um, and maybe give some anecdotal experience and also maybe some tips on, on how to do that in a variety of situations. Yeah. I, I think that, um, you know, generally like no human being is the same. I feel like a judge is like a fingerprint, right? There's never, they're never the same. You've got different dispositions, different age groups, different backgrounds, different jurisdictions. I mean, everything is completely unique, and it's kind of a blended bag. And sometimes those judges can be difficult, tough, obnoxious, condescending, you know, and sometimes unnecessarily. So, you know, kind of what I want to talk about is how do you deal with that in that situation? Um, you know, I had a, had a hearing that re- recently – on a very minor issue, you know, now that we're in Florida, there's like this mandatory thing of like, you don't get continuances, you don't get extra time, COVID's your fault as lawyers and plaintiffs or defendants, and like, that's it, we're going to trial and everything. And so we got a case management order and a case that was requiring expert disclosures before I even had an answer from one of the defendants. It was like a complicated um, products liability case. So I went in and said, look, like, you know, these deadlines that have been established by the court unilaterally, you know, it's a case management order, then, you know, something new to the, the state court level, or at least in personal injury game. And they extended it out. We won't really want to say, look, the case isn't at issue. We couldn't even set it for trial. Like, let's extend these deadlines. That was it, like 60 days, right? Something, something minor. Went in, and at the start of the hearing, the judge, you know, even though because it was unopposed and all those things, said, which one of you wants to grovel? I mean, that's a direct quote. And it, it, it's not necessary, right? Like, that's, like it shouldn't be like when I'm, I'm seeking relief from the court. It's not, I shouldn't be groveling to get relief. On and just to clarify, man, any, any prior experiences with this particular judge that you feel like there was harbored ill will? Because I don't think so, right? I mean, this was just kind of coming in cold on a routine no, issue. Just... That's how the judge is. You know, he's very tough and, you know, he, he, he speaks his mind. And so it's not a it's not a ill will towards us or the plaintiff side or anything. But he, you know, he he can be very challenging. And so, you know, how did how I you deal with it? What'd you well, say? Or what did the other side say? I mean, basically, I just said, well, I guess that'll be me, judge. Right. That, I, that That's kind of like, would you like me to present my position? I presented the position. And as you can imagine, it was denied. So, you know, what I've what I've tried to, to do with difficult judges is like recognize that like look the law isn't going to change 
right? A judge's ruling on that law can change, but obviously if you're if you're establishing and giving good law, taking good positions and, and kind of maintaining that and there's an, an adverse ruling and something that, you know, obviously you don't want to think about this, but you may be able to address that in an appellate capacity, but you want to just keep doing what you're doing the right way. Don't get, you know, like a personal effect from it, um, at least not in, in the same setting. You know, afterwards, obviously we can you know, piss and moan about what the judge did. But in terms of that, just say, look, like recognize it, make your position, move on. And then obviously if it goes your way or not. And, you know, what I've found is, is even, you know, especially back to trial stuff is when you have a, like a sidebar, even when you lose or have a tough position sidebar, smile, leave like you won. You know what I mean? Cause the jury's not really understanding what's happening and they may not know. So it's, it's those kind of things. It's, it's tr- yeah. During trial, you may want to keep a game face on for the jurors, but it's just a routine hearing where it's just, you, the lawyer representing the opponent and the judge, it's hard to do at some point. Um, There are limits. We're all human beings. We all have certain thresholds, you know? And I mean, for me, I wasn't there for that hearing, but it it begs a question for me, you know, is is such a comment really ever appropriate from the bench? Even, even if in jest, and uh, I feel like the answer is no, you know, it just should never, something like that should never be tossed out much the same. Like we hear, some judges uh, say, hope you brought your checkbook foreshadowing sanctions. You know, it's not really an appropriate comment in, in my personal belief. Yeah, I think I agree with you. I mean, I look as us as lawyers, obviously what we say to the court matters and I think it should matter backwards. And, you know, and, I, and not to say that, you know, that, I mean, look, there's great judges and not to say that this judge is a particular bad judge. He's not. It's just, you know, that's the way that he operates. And so we just, you know, looking at it of, of what can I can I do to try to to make it better and the answer is you can't really do anything I mean you kind of it's kind of the luck of the draw it's like anything I mean it depends on the form you're in it depends on the judge that you have and sometimes it can affect the case you know and so you, you well yeah and that's the point is you don't want it to affect the case it shouldn't affect the case right in theory we don't live in theory but in theory it shouldn't matter who the judge is who presides over a case it really shouldn't but I think you know, when we step back from this topic, it's like, let's let's answer maybe the preliminary question, which is like, well, what is a tough judge? Because that can mean a lot of things. And I've experienced it personally in a lot of different ways. A tough judge might be a very fair one, but maybe he or she is tough on decorum, punctuality, wearing the appropriate clothing, sitting in the appropriate places in the courtroom, right? Or maybe not bringing a beverage to counsel table, things that uh, I'm not going to call them trivial, but they're, you know, they're less substantive. You know, that could be a tough judge. Sometimes just the environment, uh, a judge could be tough on. It feels like one side versus the other. That doesn't do anybody justice. A judge could be tough in terms of, and I think we've both experienced this. Sometimes they're kind of open about, look, I'm so busy. I haven't had a chance to read the briefs. What's that issue here? Kind of catch me up to speed. And it's like, that's tough. Cause I just poured maybe four, six hours into this this motion or reply response. And I was hoping you would have a chance to read it. Um, or maybe the judge is just tough because it's hard to get a point across. You know, sometimes you perceive uh, that they have a preconceived notion on how a particular issue should be resolved and they're not really receptive. It feels like, and, and all, any one of these things, obviously a combination of these things present a series of challenges when at the end of the day, you're trying to win for your client within the confines of the law. And I'll say that, because we're all people, I've never been a judge. I don't know what it's like to wake up and put on a black robe and I hope to never. (laughs) Um, But I do know what it's like to wake up and have a hearing to look forward to. And you can anticipate getting friction from the lawyer on the other side. 
I've never been in the judges, you know, position to maybe they look at hearings and they say, oh, these two lawyers again, right? Or these two sides or these two law firms, maybe they dread a hearing sometimes because they're not looking forward to it and that bleeds through. So I can understand there's a human element to that. Um, but one of the things that I wish, and I think it's, it's aspirational and will likely never be attained in the laws. Um, I wish there was a little bit more clarity, more black and white on some substantive procedural and like evidentiary type issues that tightened up the discretion for trial judges in particular to kind of rule on a whim and leave either side who's unhappy with the ruling in a position where sure, can you theoretically appeal it at a future date? Yes. Is it likely to get disturbed on appeal? No. And because at least in Florida, judicial decisions that are left to discretion are so widely protected, it, it feels at times near impossible to get it overturned, even when everyone kind of accepts that it was the wrong ruling, you know, that can make a very tough judge, a, a judge who knows how to wield his or her discretion in a way where uh, they're not likely to be overturned, but they can disrupt proceedings, you know? Yeah. And, and I think also, and you might have mentioned this was those judges that are like sticklers for the rules and deadlines. You know, they're like, you don't get a, you don't get more time. This is it. I mean, that's what we get, you know, federal court to a degree they allow sometimes, but, um, you know, for the most part, it's, that's it. These are the deadlines. Well, we're all trying to do our best to manage our caseloads, judges included, obviously. They're not immune from those pressures. And frankly, they probably have it more than most plaintiff's lawyers. It's definitely us. We don't have a huge caseload, but there's a balance to that, right? We want to be respectful of everything. Every party, every party to the process is rights yeah. to prepare their case and then have it heard. But uh, that inherently breeds, you know, it, it breeds opportunity for there to be some conflict. And I don't mean that in, in like a very aggressive sense, just a natural scheduling, whatever. Um, you share experience. I've had other experiences that I would characterize as with tough judges that they stay with me for years because I, I just I go to sleep at night even still. I can't I can't understand them. So like one example, a real life example is. I once brought a constitutional challenge to a statute that was originally written or at least spearheaded by uh, this particular judge before he took the bench when he was a state legislator. So you've got a bill, a former bill drafted by, in large part, this person. Clearly, they believe in it and its language being constitutional. Obviously, assuming the best here, I think that's, that's easy to give. Then years later, he is put on the bench. There's a challenge to that same now statute's constitutionality. He's presiding and, you know, cutting to the chase here. I, I filed the motion. I just said, look, I, I don't think of all the jurists in the state, you're in the best position to be fair and neutral on this particular issue. And I gave the very straightforward reasons. And uh, he denied the motion and said, no, I could sit and preside. And at the hearing, I remember making a comment like, you know, it's, and this is not the, this is perhaps a poor analogy, but at the time, this is what I said. It was basically like asking him to decide if he liked his children or not, or, you know, I mean, <laughs> it's, it just didn't seem right. He denied it. I took an immediate appeal and the appellate court denied it too. Um, under the notion that I believe that if we go through this idea that if you were once a part of the state legislature and then you go on the bench, then you kind of have to be screened out of cases. It could, it could really complicate the uh, judicial assignment. And I, and I see that, but it doesn't come up all that often. Right. And I thought that one was really tough because I don't think our client got a fair shake on a really important legal issue that really had a cascading effect on how the rest of that case played out. And, um, you know, that's something that like sticks with me for years. Cause it's like, I, I try and 
put the shoe on the other foot, so to speak. And I'm like, I would never personally stay on that, that issue. I would be, I would probably voluntarily get me out of here as fast as I can. This is just not the issue for me, but um, you know, so those kinds of things happen. And I guess the issue, the issue for us today is not to just sit here and gripe and complain. That's really not the intent. It's really to say, how do you deal with it? And in that particular case, just like many others, you have to keep putting your feet forward and walking down that path. At the end of the day, your clients hire you for a reason. They don't hire you because they're hoping you get a particular judge or you end up in a particular venue with a lawyer on the other side or some, you know, they don't care about any of that. They place their faith in you to get them justice. And so obviously the defendant is usually standing in the way of that. And I don't think any judge ever purposely is standing in the way of that, but sometimes rulings have, a, have as, a, a, as a byproduct of rulings, they stand in the way of that. Um, and you have to still nevertheless navigate to that finish line because blowing up the case doesn't do anything for you as the lawyer and it only hurts your client. So you've really got to be able to, as John kind of said earlier, keep that game face on, swallow and keep going, you know, yeah. swallow the bitter pill and keep going. Yeah. I mean, it's not going to, you can't do anything about it. Right. And if you allow it to affect it, then, you know, you won't, you know, you won't be doing a, you'll be doing a disservice to your client. And what I've found is that sometimes those tough judges, you know, that can become because of the work, the product that you're doing and you continue to do it and they you've challenged them and you've, you know, in, in a context of the, the, the rulings can then turn out to say like, well, hey, these guys are doing it right. Maybe I should be listening to them. And that can kind of be a, a good effect moving forward. So, you know, we've seen both both sides of that. I mean, the last thing I'll say on tough judges is um, sometimes there's a silver lining. I started my career assigned, uh, you know, as an assistant public defender, you get assigned to a judge's courtroom. So you handle all the indigent clients that come through there that need you, the office's services. And it was one of the greatest jobs I ever had. But as a result of that, you have no choice. So you're in front of the same judge every day, day in, day out. Um, your clients change. The judge never does. And so if that judge is tough, like I started my career in front of Fred Serafin, I think he's tough in that kind of that first camp I was talking about expectations, decorum, professionalism, punctuality all reasonable things for him to expect. Um, I didn't have all that out of the gate. <laughs> I had a couple uh, over oversized suits from men's warehouse, sweating my ass off, trying to grind through a bunch of these cases and help these clients. And sometimes when you're wheeling and dealing with the state or you're trying to quick, <laughs> you know, take a, an interview of a cop in the hallway, think about the legal issue, run up to the law library. It's, it's hard to be punctual. It's hard to dress professionally. It's hard to always kind of have that, professional appearance. And, you know, he used to let me have it pretty good, but ultimately, uh, and, and not with the benefit of too long of hindsight, he made me a better lawyer because uh, the pressures, I think in that particular courtroom that he put on me, I feel like helped shape me into a bit of more of a diamond as opposed to just a, a shitty piece of coal, which is probably how I started my career. So there's definitely, there can be a silver lining there. And I, you know, I owe judges like him a debt of gratitude because that's tough for the right reasons, I think that's tough to make sure that the people are practicing to the best of their ability before you and taking it, taking the whole proceeding uh, proceedings as serious as they need to be, you yeah. know? And I think there's value to the way you just said that, you know, tough judges can make you better. And, and I think it's true, you know, because if everything was easy, you know, it's always that um, if everything was easy, you know, there wouldn't be good judges. What, what's that saying? It's like good times make soft men soft men make bad times and then bad times make hard men and I should say people not men um, and then make good times and so I think the same is when you when you have it difficult 
and you're practicing difficult, it makes you a better lawyer. You know, I started my first primary practice was in federal court. And so federal court has very rigorous expectations. Deadlines are very strictly enforced, very specific, like rule-based. So it made me be very rule-based, um, respecting deadlines. So when that came to state court, where I used to refer to it as the wild, wild west, where everything was just like, pew, pew, we're just shooting from the hip. You know, I take a very structured rule-based approach and deadlines, and I have used those advantageously, you know, in state court against opposing counsel based upon various things. So, you know, I, I think there, there's value to that, is that take the tough time to make yourself a better lawyer, and then, you know, it'll still be tough, but, you know, you, you can, can deal and plan with it and, and kind of, you know, adjust accordingly. Yeah, we're talking about tough judges, and maybe it's a good time. That it's kind of a related topic, but it's the summer, um, you know, tailing towards the end of it at least my kids start school uh back again mid-august <clears throat> just got to spend some time with the family at the lake for fourth of july which was nice but the summer has a way of um often not always um slowing down a little bit at least in the litigation side of our business historically um and when things slow down it gives you time to reflect and when you reflect it gives you time to really think about a lot of things you don't otherwise have the opportunity to and one of the things I, I find uh, I constantly keep getting my mind back to is how do I stay motivated? Not just on an individual case. That's easy. Client signs up. I'm excited to take the case. We take the case, you know, if an issue comes up or we need to press it. That's easy to be motivated about. But I'm talking motivated on a larger scale. How do I stay motivated to hungry to learn more independently as a lawyer so that I could be a better lawyer, you know, whether it's CLEs or meeting with people, how do I stay hungry to grow the business? meeting other lawyers or finding other marketing opportunities? How do I stay hungry to be a better uh, manager of people, right? We have all these human beings working with us on a team. Um, and for me, especially being remote, it's, it presents unique challenges, but how do I stay motivated to do all that? So, and, and the list goes on and on, but I think it's good when time does slow down to reinvest yourself in yourself, in your business, you know, and all that. Um, I don't know, John, what do you, do you have any thoughts on that? I do um, a little bit, and I find it challenging to be to stay motivated, and, and not for the variety of things that you said, but just because the practice of law can be exhausting, right? You know, in the sense that it's a lot of times it's the same fights on the same issues with the same people and the same experts, and it's like, look, like obviously this is the game, and I'm going to call it a game because that's what it is, that, that, that we play – you know, we're just moving around the chess piece in a different variety. You know, that to me is what sucks out my motivation to like, to be even want to be a lawyer at sometimes like, right. Like I have those moments where, where I've been, I've been a lawyer for 10 years now. And I'm like, you know, this, it's about 10 years too long. Sometimes that's, how I feel, you know, I should have done something different. You know, maybe I could have been, you know, some other kind of business owner and, and not to say that, look, I feel like I provide tremendous value for my clients you know, partnering with you, like we have a great thing going, but it's a lot, you know, it's a lot. And so, you know, I see these things and I think what really is giving me challenge right now is the idea that like, you know, I got a four-year-old and a two-year-old and, you know, they see that, that video that goes around on social media about the age of zero to five is the most important time for their life, you know? And it's like, am I missing it? Am I missing it? Because I feel either subconsciously or directly that I have to be working or I need to be here or this has to be done. And so, you know, for me, 
it, you know, it becomes mentally difficult to say like, look, I'm going to take a vacation. And I said it today. I was like, I need to go do something. I want to take my wife. We're going to go, you know, and we're going to go home, see family. But I never disconnect. Like, I never disconnect. I never am said like, I'm just unavailable. And I don't think I can ever be. Unavailable. Well, it sounds to me like, you know, you're motivated in two ways. Because I mean, just, well, two, two observations as somebody who gets to, to, to be around you and interact with you on a regular basis as a professional I, I share all the same sentiments. I really do. Um, coming up on a decade of practice is a tremendous accomplishment. At the same time, it, it gives you what feels like a full career to look back on and say, how many times have I run through this same uh, hamster wheel here on this same issue with the same expert, whatever. But by the same token, having 10 years now, uh, you undoubtedly are able to be more efficient and have less stress managing some of those same issues that come up. And it also provides you with the experience where we were just talking the other day, you're, you're, you're likely board eligible to become board certified as a civil trial lawyer, or if not, you're on the precipice of it. And what a tremendous accomplishment that would be if you elect to go that route. Right. And because uh, that's something that what 1% or less than the Florida bar of members of the Florida bar is even eligible for. Right. So tremendous accomplishment. You know, that's not something you just practice a decade, you're eligible. That's you got to work your ass off to get there with all the trial experience and the like that you need. And you don't get that just sitting at a desk, pushing papers. So that's something that you should really, that, that I hope would continue to motivate you because it's something you should be proud of for sure. But on the personal side, I, I also share the same sentiments because it sounds like you're also just as motivated to be the best John Fisher you can be. Like I'm you know, motivated to be the best Jordan I can be. I mean, I want to be the best husband, father, whatever. How do you do all those things if you're handcuffed to a business, to a law firm, to a client, to a case, to an issue, to a hearing, to a trial, trial calendar that you brought up? Where we're talking off the air. I mean, our trial calendars, it feels like just just throw out the scroll and pick a pick a week. We're on it. You know, that's what it feels like. And and when your calendar looks like that scheduling wise, how do you take time to to reprioritize your family? It's not often easy to do, you know? It's hard. And and you know, it and obviously because I feel like you know, I, I post on TikTok now, so I watch a lot of the trending videos of what's going on, but there's there's a video that says you know, I didn't want to work a nine to five business so I st or a nine to five job. So I started a business and now I work 24 seven, you know, and <laughs> like, you know, and, and sometimes, it feels that way, right. Because, you know, and, and obviously look like, I don't want to suggest that I work all the time. I don't, I mean, I take time off this actually July 4th weekend was the first time I had friends in town. I got to like, and I did disconnect, you know, and it felt great. And I'm coming back the next day, be like, all right, what's, you know, what has happened? Hopefully nothing, but you know, having that, that ability to, to separate myself from work and really try to enjoy life because I, like, I don't want to say, well, you know, what happened? Well, I worked to be enjoy life at 65. Like I just, that, that to me is not what I want to do. But at the same time, I want to be a great trial lawyer. You know, I hope and, and have aspirations to be one of the top trial lawyers in the country. And what do I do? I try to learn from them people. I see what they're doing. I try different things. I read books, you know, but now I'm finding time to say, like, do I even have time to read those books and to, to go to the seminars and go to the things that I need to do while while trying to try cases? I mean, we're set. We may have five trials in the next six weeks. You know, we're talking all over, like Seminole County. So I think we got one in Sumter County, uh, Dade, Broward. I mean, you know, and, and these are cases that are set, 17, 18. Like, they're going to go. And so it's like, how do I say, okay, right now I've got a lull, right? I've got this doubt. We have a case settled next month and I want to take time to go do something but how do I do that when I've got five trials in, in coming up in the month of September like starting in, in August into September how do I do that you know and, and that's what I find 
when I'm staying motivated, when I, sometimes it's like trying to find that way because then I'm like, okay, well then when am I going to find the time to take off? All right, I'm going to do it in, in, in October. Well, what happens in October? I got another big trial, two trials in November. And that's so, so for me, staying motivated, you know, is it's not really like I look at like there's an end game because there's not an end game for us, right? We The end game is said, look. No, but I, John, in fairness, I mean, you're a runner, even though you run outside for 10 miles at a clip or whatever you're doing. I mean, if you had a treadmill and you wanted to be fit, you wouldn't, you know, you could turn it on and just leave it at any time you want to step on it and run, but you wouldn't stay on there forever. So I think, yeah. you know, find the time to refuel the tank, you know, especially now during the summer or a case just settled, you know, that we were about to try in August, you have that window. I don't care if it's three, four days, just take it because, you know, the work's always going to be there. And so you be and and then by that token, you know, because you're motivated to be present for the family, you'll you'll take that time, you'll come back. I think you'll be re-inspired, re-motivated for the work that you're going to have to do anyway, which you'll do a great job at. So just take it. We got a great team of people, and I think um, you know, for anybody out there that feels that way, if you have if you have the ability to take the time, just take it because you can't get it back. You know, so like you said, always going to be there. <laughs> it's not it's not going anywhere. And I think that you're right. Is like just taking a moment to step back and understand like it's sometimes like when you step away you become reinvigorated to come back and crush right like i've had 100 conversations with you where you know i've coming in i've had a couple days off and i'm like i'm ready to drop the hammer i'm ready to come yeah. in here and spit hot fire and i'm filing motions and i'm setting depots and i'm crying i mean you know no lie after this podcast is over three minutes afterwards i'm taking an expert depot I'm ready. I've been ready and I'm looking forward to it. It's a guy I just crushed two weeks ago in the case that's I'm sure he's excited. <laughs> well, you know, so it's like, you know, some of those things of <clears throat> because I like competition. So for me, being motivated is like, you know, I like to win. And I think when in our business as the plaintiff side, we have to win. Right. We don't I don't make money unless we win. If we yeah. And we don't survive. So it's like we have to win in order to eat, in order to provide, you know, so that's my motivation is really like I want to win. I think that that drives me, my competitive spirit, you know, obviously in, in, in not in a negative, like I'm going to burn your house down kind of way, um, you know, but my motivation of like, you know, you're a worthy opponent and I'm going to win and I'm going to win with what I have, the tools that I've been provided, you know, and, and to, and it kind of like establishes yourself like, okay, I, you know, we went to trial, I beat one of the best and you know, that reinvigorates me for the next case. Like, maybe I am the one that can, can get to that level, you know, seeing with what I do. So those are kind of some of the things that I can think about. Well, I was, a, you know, you, you, uh, were part of it yesterday, but we were part of an eight hour mediation and, uh, you know, due to mediation being confidential and all that, I, I'm not going to get into the particulars, but the duration of it is not. Um, and you know, I went to sleep last night, I woke up this morning and one of the things that keeps coming back to my brain is like, Holy shit, man. <laughs> I spent eight hours in some organized, forced, awkward conference to try and settle the case because I had no choice to. Because, you know, I have a duty to my client to be there and, and give it its best shot. And the other side does too. But it's like, is this just one of the other things that's like death of a trial lawyer? This whole force, you know, forced arbitration, forced mediation. You should remediate. Did you mediate? You know what? Try it again. You know, it's like whatever happened to just one side picks up the phone and calls the other and says, look, this is what I think the case is worth. This is what I have. Is that enough? No. All right. Is it ever going to be enough? No. Am I close enough? No, you're not. Are we trying this thing? Yes, we are. All right. And then both sides prep the case for trial. I'm not saying that that kind of thing never happens. And I don't want to oversimplify the complexities of litigation, but um, 
I can't help but feel like as my career has gone on, I feel like more and more it's like uh, people watch movies. We were talking about this off the air, right? What, what, what legal movies are accurate or inaccurate, but it's like most of those movies take place in a courtroom, you know, where trials happen two days after the, the uh, liability event happens or something, which is also unrealistic. But I would love to be back in a courtroom all the time. Like I was in my public defender days, just day in, day out trying cases. It feels like every other week. And man, oh man, I just feel like in the civil side, it's just getting exceedingly hard to find your way into courtrooms. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm grateful to be able to have tried the one we did recently and, and all that. And I guess if we get four or five a year, we're doing great, but it's like, I feel like we should be able to try 15 to 20 cases a year. And I just feel like it's impossible. And so I don't know if it's, it's the system, it's the people in it. It's just a general desire from everybody else not to want to try cases because it's too time consuming. I don't know what it is, but I can tell you it's frustrating at this stage of my career when I feel like I don't have access to try a case as readily as I want to, you know? Yeah. I think that, um, you know, that statistic, it's like less than 2% of cases go to trial, right. Or something exceedingly low. I think that in our office, it's much higher than that. Right. And I feel like we, yeah, I was keeping track for a while. I stopped, but it is higher. significantly. Yeah, ours is much higher than that. And look, and so look, a lot of the cases that don't go to trial may be in a situation that the insurance company or the defendant carrier does the right thing and pays money. You know, they pay fair, reasonable value for the case. Now, if it's, if they're not paying it, or if you got a really good case, you should go to trial. You know, and, and I was watching, you know, Rex Parrish, he's a big trial lawyer out of, out of California. He just put on his trial school. I don't know if it was trial school, it was trial something, but I was unable to attend, but I got the on-demand thing. And in his opening remarks, he was talking about how do you get, he got a $56 million verdict in a case. And he was like, well, how do you get $56 million? You know how you do it? You reject a $20 million settlement offer. Rejected. You know? And who's doing that? By the way, I mean, can he I, is. Can, can I say that I would be in that same situation and, and turn down a $20 million demand? I would like to think so, but maybe not. You know? No, but it's economies of scale. So, or maybe that's the wrong phrase, but it, it is, it's an issue of scale because just taper it down to something more realistic, at least in our woods. It's like, uh, are people turning down the $200,000 offer when they know it's a $2 million case? Are they turning down the million dollar tender when they know they could probably get five to 10 at trial? So it does, it does have the same effect. Uh, it's interesting that he started that way because I do think that's the starting point because ultimately we're in control, meaning it's up to our clients whether to accept or reject. But that's where, like I, I have long said, criminal or civil, it's all the same. I think the most influence we have as lawyers is counseling our clients to accept or reject a deal, a plea deal or a settlement or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and that's part of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I think part of it is is because for many plaintiffs lawyers, including myself, you know, have we been in a situation where we think about like, oh man, there's a good offer on the table. Like, you know, my fee is going to be like a hundred grand. If I go to trial and get zipped, I'm getting zero. You know, that's a real life thing. Like, you know, and not to say that, you know, a plaintiff's lawyer or anybody is, is putting their interest above that of the client, but that's a it, it, back of the mind. You're thinking about that, right? Like, oh man, this case sucks. Not sucks. I don't really sucks is the bad word. This is a difficult case. It's got questionable liability, you know, or, or those cases where I think I can get $5 million at trial. They're offering me $800,000 and you turn it down and then you go to trial and you may be successful. What happens if you go to trial and you lose, 
You know, he was saying he's turned down $10 million offers going to trial and gotten zero. You know, he's like, that's, he's like, I got a lot of explaining to do. And so, you know, I feel like that idea of that, that, that confidence that, that you can make a difference and go to trial and win. And, and we did that in, you know, and I know I talked about it before, but we did that in the Marsh Gonzalez cases. We said, look, we can win. And they're offering three quarters of a million dollars. We're saying, no, thank you. We're going to get better at trial. And we did, you know, because we were confident in what we had. And when you have that confidence, you can say no. You can say no. I don't, you know, we have, you know, kind of this idea that, you know, all these ADR, these alternative dispute resolution techniques are great. And, and I, look, I don't want to say that mediation as a whole is bad because mediation, I think, can be good. I mean, we've been a part of very fruitful mediations where we've done significant presentations and kind of laid it all out. And it was wet, but I've been in ones. With- no, no, it's it's the forced component. Every one of these tools has value for the right case. It really can be fruitful. I'm just saying it's the idea that we treat it like this assembly line where every case at some point, rubber stamp it with mediation. That didn't work. Maybe rubber stamp it with uh, non-binding arbitration. Right. It's like, well, wait a minute, you know? And that's why it's just another aspect of big business for somebody to make money. Like it should be, I don't need to sit with someone to tell me how to value my case. Really to me, mediation is never for the plaintiff. Mediation is for the defense. I agree. And I tend to see them wanting it more than we do. You know, remember we used to, we had a period of time we were following all these motions to dispense with the orders referring us, but they kept getting denied. So, you know, at some point you just, the, the case that we just settled. No, but I mean, generally judges want you to go because they want the case to go away too. So, you know, but yeah, I, I think it's generally something more that, that the defense wants. Maybe it's because it puts the insurer or the agent for the insurer, like the adjuster and the defense lawyer in the same room. Probably for the first but, time. So maybe from us. Maybe they get to they get to be with us and they get to hear it directly from our mouths. Maybe that's why it's it's advantageous. But I, I just think that it should be where if it if, if the starting premise is that there should be no roadblocks to going to trial. Zero. If 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 a client doesn't have money to go to mediation, they gotta be paid and forced to go to mediation. They gotta pay for it. It's not free, you know? So they have to definitely not money. free. So not free, not cheap. Not free and not for what cheap. it is. They have to incur that expense to go to trial. That doesn't seem right. There should be no <clears throat> encumbrances towards our ability to go to trial. And then now we've got this thing where you have mandatory arbitration. You have to go to an arbitrator. And look, myself and Jordan have been part of a, an arbitration. It's a joke. There are no real rules. There's no evidence is lax. You're just like, people are just arguing. You took the words out of my mouth. Often the law talks about it being a lax proceeding. It's like, well, that's not what I want. It's definitely what my client wants, you know? Uh, I don't want to call it make-believe. It's not. It's a very real thing. But it's like, no, they want, at any time, listen, any time I need to stand up and be an advocate for my client, just like you, I want to put on my best foot forward. I don't want to be lax. I don't want to give you a proffer of what the expert says. I want to, I want you to hear it from her mouth. You know, I don't want to give you a proffer of what, cool, compelling demonstrators. I'm going to show the jury. I want to show them. Well, I don't want to go spend 20 grand to get that made yet because it's not trial. It's just, right. it handcuffs you and your ability. And um, here's the yeah. problem. Here's the problem with arbitration and with mediation. That's not present with the jury. A jury does not have to curry favor with any side in the case, any side. An arbitrator has to be selected. So what do they do? Well, I don't want to hammer these guys too much. They may never want to use me again. This is business for me. Mediator, same thing. Well, he was awfully tough on us. I don't want to do that. He was t- 
take, giving too much for the plaintiff or the defendant. So, you know, they got to play this like in between instead of doing like recognizing what it is. So I believe that a jury is the best way to resolve every dispute. I believe that without, and you're never going to tell me otherwise. You're never going to say like, oh, the mediation is the best. Now look, people like mediation. They do good jobs at mediation. I used to, to, to care more about mediation. I don't anymore. I don't even really, you know, yes, I want to see their case because, but you're not going to necessarily see mine because I don't, because I don't look at it coming in every time. Like it's going to settle the case because like Jordan said, you can pick up the phone and you could call me and we can talk about resolving a case. I don't need to spend $3,000 to settle a case. You know, I did that. I did that recently on a case. I was just so happy that the other lawyer was open to it. Because it basically went something like this. The other side reached out. The case had been going on for a while. Hey, but this might be a good time to mediate. You know, my side's... <laughs> I wrote back, just give me a call with a number when you're ready. I'll relay it to my client. I'll call you back and say, yes, we accept. Or no, here's another number. He did it to his credit. And in like two phone calls, it got done. And everybody saved about $1,800 a side in mediation costs. And God knows how much time scheduling and waiting. Uh, and I think both clients, which is what matters, were much happier for it. So... I think that should be the norm. And I'm totally with you on the big disputes, uh, meaning like the actual controversy of the lawsuit that should be resolved by jurors, because in that scenario, both sides are dealing with the same captive audience of jurors, people plucked from the community largely against their will. Seriously, nobody really wanting to be there or very few. Um, it's a civic duty that, to be taken seriously. And I don't just, I don't want to discourage anyone from doing it. Uh, it's the opposite, in fact, but I mean, they don't want to be there. They're being disrupted from their lives. Unlike a mediator or an arbitrator who's being paid to be there, uh, a juror is never going to see you again. They'll never sit on another case. They'd be disqualified, right? An arbitrator, mediator, almost necessarily wants to see you again, both sides. Right. Uh, so there are these things that are not the same uh, fr from a decision-making standpoint uh, that allow the controversy, in my opinion, to get resolved the right way all the time. And I think at the end of the day, it's just like, I just, just go to trial, man. You know, just... Just let us go to trial. We've all had the client, the cases where we've gone, think we're going to win and we lose. We've all had the ones we're not sure about. We go hit it out of the park and everything in between. It's not that predictable, but the reality is it's the best solution to solving controversies. I'll never be convinced otherwise, just the same as you. So that's why I get so frustrated when I see all these impediments or encumbrances, as you said, to getting there. Um, it's also why I get frustrated. And by the way, there are so many great lawyers out there on, on both sides of the fence, but I know more plaintiffs, just by, you know, the nature of the beast who still try cases, want to try cases. So this is by no means saying we're doing something so different that no one else does, but the numbers speak for themselves. <laughs> Clearly we're in the minority here, no matter what the other people actually say, because the numbers don't lie. You know, if, if 2% or less of cases are going to trial, you know, 97 plus percentage of cases are being settled. So we got to fix that, I think, by and large. And because when people are settling cases, we talked about this with Joe Freed. I don't want to beat a dead horse, but how many times are they trying to jam confidentiality down your throat so the world doesn't know? That's another part of a trial. A verdict is public record, you know, yeah. all the way around. No hiding. So I just feel like there's just a tremendous benefit to trial that is lost when cases settle along the way. And I think most cases settle along the way because the client runs out of patience or they get frustrated or the lawyer does, you know, whatever it is. Um, and it just kind of runs out of steam. And I don't think that's the way it should be. And I wish there was a better allocation of resources to have more courtrooms, more judges, pay these jurors better money so that they're not, you know, I mean, how many, John, how many times has there been a 
ideal juror, and I don't mean pro-plaintiff, just somebody who seems like they're attentive, they're educated to listen, they can decipher bullshit from truth. Uh, they can miss their work, obviously, right, with that. But like there's a child care issue or there's a concern with this because they're getting whatever the hell they're getting, crumbs per diem. It's like it's not fair either. So that's, it, the system is not set up for success. Definitely needs a large overhaul, which is why I complain about it. But you take action and you're on rules committees and the like. <laughs> well, I, I think, look, I try to be on the things that it will affect my practice. If it's the rules committee, if it's the evidence committee, I, I didn't even know there was a committee for the jury instructions, which I would have loved to be on to have my input in that. But. The thing is, is that being a trial lawyer, that there there's inherent benefits, not with just like, hey, we need to go to try a case. I think when you when you are a trial lawyer, we file every single case like it is going to trial. The way we litigate our cases is like they are going to trial. We don't litigate cases to settle them. And, you know, and so if you if you got the idea like, oh, we're going to file, they're going to pay us more money or not. No, you need to file with the idea that they have to pay you to stop you from going to trial, right? You're not filing to get them to pay you money so you can settle. They need to pay you to stop you from going to trial, right? Yeah. Two, uh, two of our biggest settlements as a firm, or I think they are definitely one of them, but years later, they still stick with me. I don't want to say regret of settling. It's not a regret, but the frustration of not ever being able to try those cases. So like, this is not about, I want to try cases because to me, it's the only way you can get big numbers. I'm talking about multi-million dollar, eight figure settlement. I, it still haunts me at night that I never got to try that case. Um, and that's not, it's not an isolated outlier. That's how badly I want to be trying cases. And I, and I, I hope, we do a good enough job conveying that to clients. I think we do, which is why when it comes time for them to select our firm, they do so knowing full well that we're going to work that thing up, just like you said, and press it to the limits. And we're not doing it in hopes to pressure them to settle. If they do along the way and it makes our clients happy, then, hey, we've done our job. But we're doing it because we're hoping one day those floodgates open and we get to go fight in the Coliseum right. for our client, you know? And, and then all bets are off, you know? And then it's like we do what we do, what we think we can do best is – advocate in front of a jury, pick the right jury, do our presentation, and then really have, find good people that can be fair and find justice. And I, and I think that, and then when you do that, you know, kind of inherently, maybe the reason why more cases settle is that when they, when you're in the category of, of law firms that will do that, it will be a trial lawyer and do all those things and try those cases, win, lose, or draw. Cause I think we've gone in and, you know, I've lost, you know, big cases and it happens and but if we're still willing to go and get right back up and get right back on that horse after we were just got thrown off you know you you have a reputation for that i think that it inherently increases the value for your future clients so maybe that's why cases yeah that's something that you and i talk about off the air that probably should just be explicit in the episode that's part of the motivation here yeah. it's not trying for ego for the bravado of saying i'm a gladiator only it's to say Every time I step into the arena, my name, my firm becomes more synonymous with risk for insurers. Well, the more synonymous you are with big risk for insurers, the more money they're going to offer you on the next case. Who does that help? Your next client. Right. So it's likely to help your client. We feel like our unique value proposition is trying cases. So trying the case is almost certainly going to be the best way to give that particular client the best shot at justice. And then in turn, it's going to parlay and probably help the next one down the line. So yeah, I don't, I don't want that to go unsaid. That's a really good point. 
Yeah, and 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 we you know we've seen it, and I like to. It's like this strange idea that you know we're ten years in. We've been partnered now for, gosh, has it been five years? I think it's been five years. Twenty seventeen, I think, yeah, wasn't so it? April twenty seventeen. So five years we've been together. You know, we've tried a lot of cases together, and we have seen kind of that matriculation as to what we started as to where we are now in terms of you know offers dealings results all the like that like it's all all that work is starting to pay off right and it's gonna i feel the same now it's like continuing it's like the like the cycle of of having a law firm of like you know you got to get the cases in and then you got to do the pre-suit then you got to file them then you got to litigate them you got to go to trial and then you know kind of then you have that wheel that just keeps spinning and so that's why when we talk about motivation you got to be motivated because that wheel is always spinning but you know being recognizing that the inherent value of being a trial lawyer and then you know that and what that brings to every other aspect of the cycle it helps you because you know what you're looking for in pre-suit i mean we, we're now in our you know obviously thanks to joe freed but you know in the trucking cases we're i'm sending freedom of information requests to immediately upon filing obtaining all the information doing downloads stuff in pre-suit because you need it for trial right so so every aspect of every single case that walks in your when they sit down, it's like, what do I need for trial? How am I going to present this? What do I need to look for? And I do that now, right? It's like, a, like we have like a rapid response team of all the things we need for every single case. That's why we started getting and securing 911 falls on police crashes, body cam footage from officers, right? That I hadn't really th- I thought about it, but hadn't thought about it. Now that's, that's routine. We've got forms that we- Well, it's like about. controlling the controllables, knowing, of course- that the end goal for us is to end up in a courtroom. Correct. If from day one, you did, you just were hoping to settle, you, we wouldn't do any of those things, even if we knew how to do them probably. Cause I mean, we're not those people, but I can surmise those type of people. They don't give a shit. So it's like the less work I have to do, the less time I'm spending more time for me. And maybe one day I'll get a payday, yeah. you know, and I'll, I'll convince the client in some perverse world. No, this is the best outcome. Well, maybe that is the best outcome. Cause you didn't work up the case. So thank God we don't do things that way. Yeah. You know, I, I, I really feel good about that. Yeah, and you can, if you can show your client's injuries through a body cam footage of an officer, I mean, how powerful is that? You, you're seeing it live time, and we, we, I mean, we saw, and actually, in there, and like, obviously, we have a case that we're going to be filing soon, and I'm extremely excited about. Um, excited in the sense that if the insurance company doesn't do the right thing, when we file, it's a trial case. There will be no settlement discussions at all. We're going to go, it's, you know, better than Marsha Gonzalez in terms of a, a UM carrier case. But in the video, we got the body cam footage. It shows complaints to fire rescue that aren't documented in the fire rescue report. You know, and, and part of the things is they always say, like, look, you know, there's nothing in this record. They don't say it, blah, blah, blah. That, you know, it's not there. Therefore, it never happened. But here we are having direct video evidence contradicting the absence of that in a medical record that they would point out. And now we have it. So now it's a discrepancy in the record, which is kind of fits into our stuff. But the, the idea is that because we know that that's going to be an issue at trial, we can find ways early on to kind of rule, like we're not, I want to say routed out. It's not even the word I'm trying to look for to, to basically, I don't know what I'm trying to say. Contradict, not contradict. I don't know. I didn't go to, I'm not an English major, so I, I speak very colloquial to basically attack that defense with evidence that you can get at the very beginning and you have to get or it doesn't exist. So I think that, you know, being a trial lawyer, that's, that has helped us. And these, these methods kind of 
have changed, I think, the idea that people file lawsuits to settle. And, and not, not to say that that's a bad thing. You know, that's just, you know, you want to be able to, to think in the sense of each case is going to trial. And how do, and what do I need to get there? And then if they want to pay me to stop, stop that train, they can do that. And that's how cases right. settle, not, not, you know, the other way around. I tell, I mean, I, I know we're coming up on time, but having just gotten back from firing a couple events of the World Series of Poker, I always say this kind of stuff, but I really, I, be, I say because I believe it. There's a lot of similarities between poker and, and personal injury law. And one of them is <clears throat> when you always have it, when you always get the best hand, you got the nuts in poker, rarely are you getting paid, <laughs> paid truly what you need because the other side knows it. So they may give up a little chips and you feel good. You want the pot. Ha ha. Look at this. But it's the people that are always willing to go to the river or make that light call or make that bluff, whatever. They're the ones that when, when they finally have it, they get paid piles of chips or they get paid piles on a verdict because the other side gambles and shoot. Do they have it? Do they not? Or whatever. They're a real risk. And uh, those are the ones in my experience that get paid. And that's how we try and model our business. It's not a gamble. It's just calculated risk assessment by saying, if I prepare this case from trial, from day one, every single time I do it against every insurer, they're definitely going to know which ones were actually like, well, maybe we'd settle if they pay or not. They have to be scared of all of them. And as a result of being scared of all of them, hopefully they pay more for all of them. And that just, you know, helps all of our clients. So I'm trying to be a cowboy. That's what I want to be. I want to be, yeah. they're cowboys. They're reckless over there. You know, th that's the idea, but actually we're not the opposite of that. We're very diligent, hardworking and calculated. You know, so it may yeah, seem it's an like image. It's an image we cultivate, but real, really beneath the surface, we're nonstop working to crush. You know, we don't we? We recognize the power of no, right? You want to? Well, other people are taking this money. Great. Well, you're not litigating with other people, and other people may be undervaluing their cases. We're not that firm. We are going to go, and we know our value at trial, and you know, we see good things happen. And yeah, we don't want to be our own limiter, as Joe said a couple of weeks ago, right? Right. Don't be your own limiter and say, look, you can. As much as I, you know, I don't want to say this, you know, in John Morgan's book, which said you can't teach hungry, he says you need to treat every case like it's a merry-go-round going 6,000 revol revolutions per minute and they have to pay you to get off. And that's how you should treat it. And the thing is this, I think that a lot of the defense firms have too many cases, right? As the plaintiffs, we try, I try to have less cases because I can't manage a massive caseload. They can't either. So you can really take advantage of that and push your cases hard because they can't keep up with you because they just got too much work. And when you have too much work, all they're doing is putting out fires and you can't, if you can't, if they're coming up too fast. Eventually hey, you got me thinking that Ozzy Osbourne was that black Sabbath crazy train. I just want to play that in the background now. Just have them going nuts. Right. You know, but eventually, you know, look, if you, if you're, they trying to spend all their time putting out fires, they're not woken up this case and what's going to happen. Eventually that force is going to burn down and they're going to be sitting there with it with a charred, charred event and saying, man, could I have done something different? Maybe, but too many cases will do that. So take, so take advantage of that, you know? So. hundred percent. All right. Your depot's coming up. So let's cut this one a little bit short, but thank you everybody for tuning in. No guests today. Might be a couple interesting guests coming up. We're reaching out to, so we'll keep you on notice of that, but thank you like always for joining us and all our best. All right. See you guys. Thanks for checking out the John and Jordan on Justice podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, consider leaving us a review and be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with John and Jordan, check out at on Justice pod on Instagram and Twitter or check out discord for plaintiff 
to communicate with them and like-minded plaintiff attorneys in a private Discord server. Until next time, this is the John and Jordan on Justice Podcast. Podcast.